Welcome back to That's Helpful with me, Ed Stott. Lots of us are traveling during the holiday season and some of us might be lucky enough to be getting on a plane. Whilst we love our travel, so many of us are terrified of flying. So what can we do to ease those fears and fly fearlessly into the holiday season? Well, Captain Tom Bunn is an airline pilot and licensed therapist and the president of SOAR, an organization that he's been running for the last 30 years, helping people to overcome their fear of flying. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. I'm glad to be here. It is so fascinating. Tell me, how did you get into this? You were were talking to me a little bit before we started recording, but how did you get into um, helping people with the fear of flying rather than the flying? Well, we had a pilot at Pan Am way back in the 1970s who started a course on fear of flying, and he asked me to volunteer to help him. And I said, hey, Slim, I don't want to be around a bunch of crazy people. And he said, no, (laughs) come on, take a look. I'm doing a course at Newark. You'll be surprised. And I was. It seems that everybody who has trouble with flying is very intelligent. You can think of a thousand things that could go wrong, and you're very imaginative. You can put it in your mind so vividly that you think the bad thing is happening. Mm -hmm. So there we go. That's pretty much the basis of what happens with people who try to get on an airplane, they think about some something awful happening. It could be the plane crashing, but more likely it's having a panic attack. Yeah, absolutely. And how common is this fear? How many people do you come across with this? Well, statistics say one person out of three has a fear yeah, of flying. Right. And of those people, half don't fly at all and half do, but with a lot of stress. But probably on the average airplane, about half the people are not happy to be there. Yeah, I can absolutely believe that. So many of us fly quite often, but we are still so scared, you know, and most of us have never had any bad experiences while flying, but why, why do you think we are so scared about this? Well, consider that I guess all of us have had traumatic experiences of some kind. Hmm. And if you think about one that you've had, I think you'll find that there's two universally true things. One is, you were not in control. If you had mm. been in control, the bad thing wouldn't have happened. And you, weren't a, you were not able to escape. If you could have escaped, it wouldn't have happened to you. So after a traumatic experience, we get sort of labels in our mind. Anything that you don't control or don't have a way to escape from becomes a situation that if you start to head toward it, a part of the brain reads those labels and instead of just tapping you you're on the shoulder and says, I don't think you should do this, it actually mm-hmm. gives us stress hormones. And if we continue into this situation where we have no control and no escape, the stress hormones build up and could even cause a panic attack. Yeah, absolutely. And so how have you developed your methodology? You said that you um, you know, started with Pan Am in the 1970s, helping them develop a system to get people over their fear of flying. But how did you figure out what actually worked for people? Well, that course at Pan Am was, was groundbreaking, but it wasn't successful for everyone. And I thought maybe we could improve it. I suggested adding cognitive behavioral therapy to the mix that then never happened. So I set up my own course and added that thinking it was going to be the answer. Turns out it doesn't help that much because when people start to get revved up, their ability to think, their cognition that they need for cognitive therapy techniques disappears. Right. And, and they just escalate right up into a panic attack. 
And the more they try to, it's a state of overwhelm. And the more they mm -hmm. try to get out of the panic attack, the more they add to their overwhelm and just keep the panic attack going. Okay. There was a therapist in, in, in Australia who, who said that really what you need to do if you have a panic attack is just let, let it let go and not try to control it. That's the quickest way out of it. Because there, anything you try to do to stop it, it, it makes it more, makes you more overwhelmed and extends it. But there are a couple of techniques we've come up with that if you're headed toward a panic attack, uh, you can uh, probably keep it from developing. Mm. Um, it's a technique called the 54321 that uh, started out as a, as a way to go to sleep. Um, but if, if it can put you to sleep, it's enough to calm you down. <laughs> and what, what you do is you, you just focus on something straight ahead and you use your peripheral vision and you name five things you see. Mm -hmm. I see the computer, I see my cell phone, I see a table, I see a chair, I see a picture on the wall, like that. Whatever's, whatever's there. And then you switch to five things you hear. And there may not be five different things. You might have to repeat something like, I hear my voice, I hear the cell phone, I hear the air conditioning, I hear my voice and your car going yeah. by. And then five things that you can touch, like I feel my feet on the floor, I feel the earbuds in my ear, I feel an itch on the left side of my temple, <laughs> uh, I feel my butt in the chair, and so on. So you, that takes a lot of concentration. And... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Because you're concentrating on things that are not threatening, you're not producing more stress hormones. So all the time you're doing this, the stress hormones are burning off. Mm -hmm. So if you can keep this going for about 90 seconds, you're back to normal. Yeah. But <clears throat> to keep the concentration intense, remember I called us the five, four, three, two, one. To keep the concentration intense, after you do five things you see, five things you hear, five things you touch, you do four. And then you do three of each, and then you do two of each, and then you're down to one. And because you keep changing the number of things you're going to speak about, then the concentration stays intense. And so it, you see, if you kept doing five of each, you'd get into a groove and you'd be able to do that and think of an anxiety-producing <laughs> So this, this is very helpful. Um, Another thing that's a good tip for people is what we call the Jello exercise. This exercise I came up with years ago because people would picture the plane up in the sky being held by nothing and figure, hey, nothing's holding it up. It's got to fall. Yeah. And so I said, well, look, if you walk across the room four or five miles an hour, air mm -hmm. doesn't slow you down. It's not thick enough. But if you get on a bike, you probably can only go about 20, 25 miles an hour, most of us. We're not elite bike, bike ride, right, racing. And so the, it's as if the air is building up and getting, it doesn't really get thicker, but it feels like it's getting thicker. Mm -hmm. If you put your hand outside the window of a car going 50 miles an hour and you push against it, it takes about the same effort as if you put your hand down in the water in a swimming pool and pushed against it. So we're still getting thicker and thicker as we go faster. Now, what yeah. happens is when the plane gets up to the speed it's can can fly at, the air gets as thick as jello. Right. Now, think about the jello you had at the restaurant. Um, oftentimes, it has fruit suspended in it. And you could pick up the jello, you could shake it, and it will let the fruit jiggle, but the fruit won't fall. So, the idea is if you get air as thick as jello, it will hold the plane. 
Now this just gives us a way of saying, instead of looking up in the air and seeing the plane up there and held by nothing, imagine it's being held by a huge mass of jello all the way from the earth up to space, 12 miles of it or so, and the plane's in the middle of it. Mm. So to take this a little farther, let's imagine you go down to um, the store and you get some jello and a little model airplane and some shish kebab skewers. Yeah. You come home and you make your jello, you put the airplane in the middle of it, and after it's set, you can come in with your shish kebab skewers from behind the airplane and put the tips against the engines, and you can push forward and make the plane cut forward through the jello. Now consider this, you can only imagine it going where it's headed. So mm. now if you have the plane on the runway and the nose is not lifted, the plane is not going to come off the runway as it goes forward. But what, as you know, happens is the pilots lift the nose a bit, and so now it has to go into the air. It can't do anything else. And so you just keep the nose lifted until you get to the altitude you want to cruise at, and then you bring the nose level to the horizon. It stays there. If you get into turbulence, yep, sure, you can jiggle in the, you can jiggle in the jello, but you can't fall through it. Yeah. And that's really helpful for people to, to conceptualize something is actually holding me up. I love that. That is so helpful because that's one of the biggest fears for people, isn't it? That the plane's just going to drop out of the sky because it just seems so unbelievable to our brains that it's actually There's nothing holding it up, right? I can't see anything holding it up. It should fall. Exactly, exactly. And that is such a brilliant visualization technique. And how, how safe is flying, actually? Well, there was a guy named Barnett, a professor at MIT, who for years has done statistics on what's the chances of your plane going down, one in three million, one in five million, whatever. He's given up because there's no crashes, at least in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K. We're just not having crashes anymore. We, we haven't had a major airline crash in the U.S. for over 20 years. Mm. So he's got no, he's not go, got any crashes to compare with the number it's of flights. Quiet. <laughs> um, so it's gotten, it's gotten to the point that people I talk to now are not so much afraid of crashing, they're afraid of having a panic attack. Yeah. Once again, it comes back to that idea of when you have had a traumatic experience, you were not able to escape and you didn't have control. So any place... Could be an elevator, could be an MRI, could be a bridge or tunnel. Any place that you can't have complete control of what happens, and any place that you can't get out of leaves you feeling vulnerable. Mm. And if you've had a bad traumatic experience, it's more than vulnerable. You, you remember the feelings you had in the trauma. So let's say you get into an airplane. It's a safe place, but, it, but you can't escape. It's a safe place, but you don't have control. The pilot's controlling, and pilots can take care of that fine. But you're not controlling it. Mm. You see, if you, the amygdala, the part of the brain that releases stress hormones, Mm. is set up to cause stress hormones to be released anytime something happens that you are not expecting to happen. Mm -hmm. So when you drive your car and you turn the wheel to the left, you expect the car to go to the left. It does, and your amygdala is totally happy with that. But if you're in the cabin of the plane and the plane starts to roll into a turn to bank to the left, you know, you and I know the cause of it, the pilot turned the wheel to the left. But since you didn't get to see that ahead of time, you weren't expecting it, and the amygdala goes nuts on you, releasing stress hormones just because the plane went into a bank. 
Yeah. Now, that probably is not going to cause panic, but the thing that does very easily cause panic is turbulence because there's one drop after another, after another, after another. Yep. And the part of the brain that releases stress hormones that's trying to keep us safe, the amygdala. Well, let's say you're up on a stepladder and you're going to change a light bulb. If you lost your balance, uh, even though you're concentrating on that task, stress hormones are going to zap you and make you say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, forget about the light bulb, get your balance back. You've got to get yeah. Well, that's good. We need that. But we get the same thing on the airplane and we don't need it. And not to, it's not that we just get it one time. We get it again and again and again. Yep. So we get a buildup of stress hormones that causes such feelings of being revved up that we c- cannot imagine that we're safe. Mm-hmm. And so since you're able, not, unable to escape to, to get relief, the next thing that we go into is a state of freeze or a state of panic. Mm-hmm. So what we have to do is to set it up so that the brain automatically uh, goes into activating its calming system when you're on the plane. So we have found through first just stumbling on it that if we link being on the plane to being with a completely safe person, Mm -hmm. that controls the anxiety on the plane. Um, When you're with a safe person, you're picking up signals that activate your calming system. Mm. The calming system is called the parasympathetic and nervous system. The system that revs us up increases our heart rate and breathing rate and makes us sweaty and ready for action. That's the sympathetic nervous system. So when stress hormones are released, the sympathetic nervous system revs us up to get us ready to run or fight if we need to. Well, what if we don't need to? Hopefully, the parasympathetic nervous system is going to kick in and push back against those stress hormones. And since we know on the plane you actually don't need to be revved up, we just set it up to keep telling the parasympathetic to kick in. So we link walking on the plane to being with a person you feel totally safe with. We link the plane taxing out to a person you feel safe with, etc. throughout the whole flight. And how do you go about doing that? Is there a way that we can do that for ourselves? Yeah, if you start out with, let's say, preparing a list of everything you can identify that happens on a routine flight. And the same Mm -hmm. thing happens on every flight. You know, you go on the plane, you sit down on the seat, you put on your seatbelt, the door closes, the plane pushes off the gate, text, you know those things. So you Mm -hmm. make a list of them. Mm-hmm. What we'd like to do is have each of those things become a stimulus that will activate calming. So what we next do is we try to identify a person we feel really comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people say, well, I'm going to try linking to my husband or wife. And I think that that's probably not the ideal person, because yeah. although we're totally accepted when we first get together, uh, after a while we get on each other's nerves. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably better to just look for a good buddy, someone yeah. who doesn't judge us, someone who doesn't even advise us. If someone advises us, it kind of puts them in a one-up position. It just needs yeah. to be someone who just doesn't care whether we fly or not. If you do, if you, it's fine. If you don't, it's fine. You know, I don't judge you at all. People who don't judge you, they don't even say it. They just don't do it. 
Yeah, yeah, so you're just looking not... for that kind of friend. Yeah, mm-hmm. looking for that kind of friend because that kind of person with your when you're with them, they unconsciously signal your calming system to kick in. Mm. I mean, you know that you're safe with them. You can even feel your guard let down sometime with them. You might think intellectually it's because of your history with them. Well, mm-hmm. could be some, but what really makes it happen neurologically is signals from their face, signals from their voice quality, and signals yeah. from their touch. Now, I, can, I think I can prove this to you because most of us know that when a kid is born, they know how to scream bloody murder. They can, they can get revved up. Their sympathetic mm-hmm. nervous system works fine. Mm-hmm. But in order to be born, the brain is not fully developed at birth. After birth, it grows a lot. And one of the things that's, that's going to grow is the calming system. It's not there in its mature form at birth. So mm-hmm. when the child gets upset, the mom intuitively presents her love her soft loving eyes her face yeah she talks to the baby now the baby doesn't understand those words why does it work because mm. the sound of the human voice triggers the calming system yeah. and the last is touch she holds the baby maybe chest to chest skin to skin that's the best for calming so the mom's face the mom's voice the mom's touch activates the calming system so now we've got that established so now we just look for a friend who is equally safe to be with us, yeah. as safe as you were with your mom when you were born. And now that person activates your calming system with their face, their voice, their touch. So, okay, let's imagine you're with that person. Mm-hmm. And they have a small snapshot. You remember that list of things that happen on a routine flight? Yeah. Let's imagine, let's say just for example, walking on the airplane. Mm-hmm. Let's imagine your friend has a snapshot little just mm, four by six snapshot uh, touching their cheek it's a picture of people walking on the airplane Mm -hmm. now so what that's doing is connecting walking on the airplane with the safety coming from safety signals coming from that person's face step two you look at the picture together talk about it now you're both looking at the same thing have the same thing in mind and your friend's voice is now changing how that feels. Mm-hmm. And then while you're talking about it, you notice your friend put their arm around you. They're giving you an affectionate hug. So we've got their face, their voice, their touch. Mm-hmm. Those three things that activate the calming system. Activating the calming system in response to a photograph, imaginarily or real, mm-hmm. of people getting on the plane. Then you go to the next thing. Imagine, let's say, sitting down in the seat. Link that to the person's face, voice, and touch. Door closing. That's a tricky moment. You definitely want to link that to your friend's calming influence, their face, voice, and touch. Go through the whole plane, whole mm. plane flight like that. Yeah, right. And so you're just picturing, with these different moments that happen on the plane, you're picturing different elements of this calming person for you. The calming, and you want to, oh yeah, by the way, you want to definitely do this before you even head to the airport. You want to do yeah, it, rehearse perhaps it. starting maybe a week before you fly. So yeah. you build it in so it works automatically without you thinking. Because once yeah. again, when you get on the plane, your cognition may get fried by the stress unless we have preconditioned your mind to take care of you automatically on the airplane. 
Yeah, I like that. That's really good. So what if we get on the plane and we've run ourselves through this and it's working a bit, but then we get into some turbulence. I've heard you mention that writing while you're on the plane can help. Well, anything that you can do to occupy your mind helps. The mm. problem with turbulence is when you get that feeling of dropping, the amygdala says, ah, emergency, you're falling. So you and snap no into matter the what panic. you do to try to occupy your mind, no matter what you try to do to occupy your mind, it's going to cut right through there, yep, which it yep, should. Yep. I mean, look, if you're about to fall, you definitely want to forget about what you're doing and be warned that you're about to get hurt. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, you know, I just picked up the news this morning and saw that there was somebody up in New Hampshire who was taking a picture of their wife and they fell off a cliff. Oh, God. Uh, so, yes, we need that warning. Yeah. Um, what, we, what we also need to do to help deal with turbulence is this. You can temporarily train your amygdala to regard falling as fun. Okay. If you, the day, the day before your flight, let's say, mm -hmm. since it's temporary, you go to some stairs with another person, step up from the floor onto the first step. You're about yeah. seven inches above the floor on that first step. Turn around to face the floor. So there, the, both of you on the same step, side by side. Put your arms around each other so you're, you are embraced side by side. And then on the count of three, jump down to the floor. It's only mm -hmm. seven inches. You'll be in midair for about a tenth of a second. But in that tenth of a second, all that time, you're in free fall, which the amygdala normally would react to. But in this case, it's going to say, if it could talk, oh, come on, you know, you can't kid me. This isn't dangerous. How do I know? You've got your arms around each other. This is fun. I like it. Do it again. <laughs> so if you do it four or five times, you get your mind shifted over to thinking, oh, falling isn't dangerous. It's delightful. That can yeah. help also. Okay, I like that. I like now, that a lot. Of all, the, of all the tips I can offer, the best one might be a little challenging. Go it, on. It's to meet the pilot. Yeah. You see, because you have to give up control. If you mm -hmm. meet the person who has the control and you get a good feeling about that person, it makes a huge difference. Mm. Now, in order to meet the pilot, you have to do a little bit of work. First of all, you've got to get past your embarrassment of doing it. Hmm. Maybe it helps to think about, would you go to a hospital and say, here I am for my operation. Do I want to meet the doctor? No, just knock me out. No, you wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it makes sense that you would like to meet the person who your life is in their hands, right? Why yeah, not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you, you need to get to the gate early mm -hmm. before boarding starts and tell the gate agent that you're an edgy about flying and you would like to board early so hopefully you can meet the pilot. Yep, that yep. person's probably not going to set it up for you to meet the pilot. All you want from them is to get on the plane early. Yep. So once you're on the plane, you know, of course, that someone's going to greet you and point you to go to your seat. Okay, say thanks, but don't go to your seat. Instead, find a way to step out of the traffic pattern of people getting on the plane, maybe step in the galley or step into an empty aisle. And look for another flight attendant, someone who's not tied up with that greeting job, and ask them, would you go up to the cockpit and see if the pilot would let me come up and say hello? Yeah. That's how you do it. 
Great. I love that. That's really good advice. Yeah, I like that. What if we can't meet that specific pilot? Would meeting other pilots and understanding their training and, you know, the fact that they also don't want to fall out of the sky, would that help with any easing of that, any anxiety? I think think knowing that the pilot can't get the plane on the ground without Getting you on the ground is good to know. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's different than most things. You know, you go to you go to your lawyer. You hope your lawyer doesn't have a conflict with uh, what they're interested in, or you go to a doctor and you hope that the doctor's going to finish doing what they need to do when they're operating on you, because if they have a golf game scheduled, <laughs> that might be a conflict. They might not finish up the job right. Uh, because it usually it works out, but you know there are these doubts. Yeah. Um, if you recognize that the pilot really, even if the pilot was a complete jerk, yeah. In terms of social life, as long as they are not a jerk when it comes to operating the plane, that's all you need, mm. because they're going to take care of themselves, and they can't take care of themselves without taking care of you. See, yeah. a used car dealer can take care of themselves without taking care of you, but not a pilot. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, yeah. and it's, you see, we're so used to being on guard about not trusting anybody. You don't have to worry about that on an airplane. Yeah. It's a totally unique situation. I don't know of any, maybe there's some other situations that are equally, um, you're in the same boat with, but uh, this one is one that's where it's so powerful that meeting the pilot makes a big difference. Yeah, I really like that. Or even like thinking that. about the fact that, that that the pilot can't get the plane on the ground without taking care of you too. Yeah, I really like that. That is such a good suggestion. Um, and so is there anything that we can do in particular in terms of where we choose to sit um, to make the flight feel a bit less scary for us? Yeah, because turbulence is... Well, think about... Think about a seesaw. You know what yeah. kids use? Yeah, the yeah, part yeah. of the seesaw, the ends move more up and down. The, the, the fulcrum doesn't move very much up and down. Or it, well, it, it, it rotates. It doesn't move up and down at all. Yeah. So the part of the plane that's the fulcrum, that's the wings. Yeah. So if you can get a seat over the wings, that's the best spot. Right. Okay. Behind the wing, is, the farther back you go, the more the plane's going to move. Yeah. Um, first class... Is, above, is in front of the wing, it's still good because it's, it's not very, there's not much seating ahead of the wing, but there's a lot yeah. of seating behind the wing. And mm-hmm. that's where if you go back at the tail, the plane's gonna move around a lot. Now, think about this. Pilots up in the cockpit, if you wait until you need to use the toilet, you may find that it's occupied. So what pilots tend to do is when the seatbelt sign is on because of turbulence, that's when they go back and use the toilet. You know, you're supposed to say, well, you can't get out of your seat. But in the front of the plane, in the worst turbulence, the plane at the front does not move enough that you can't, as a pilot, go back and use the toilet, the first class toilet. You couldn't use the one in the back, but you can use the one in the front. Yeah. So that's what we do. And and so... Be on the lookout for this. Next time you're on a plane and the seatbelt sign is on, you might notice the cockpit door open and the pilot going to the toilet because that's when we go. I've never, I've never been in turbulence that was too bad that I couldn't use the front toilet. So that pretty much makes it clear that the front of the plane is definitely the place where you want to get a smooth ride to sit. 
Is there any time that we should worry when we're on a plane? Is there in any circumstances that we see, you know, potentially flight attendants looking uneasy or, you know, is there anything that we, you know, I don't know, in some kind of reverse psychology, we can think, well, that's not happening. So I reckon we're good. Well, yeah, ex- well exactly. If you if you say, I, I know there's a signal that will turn on if the plane's yeah, in trouble. Right? So as long as it's off, we're fine. Well, I have suggested because people tend to think turbulence is a problem. Yeah. Um, see, I used to fly fighters in the Air Force, and if you were doing a maneuver where you pulled a lot of Gs, I don't know how to explain that other than, you know, when you hit the brakes on your car, you slow down rapidly, maybe yeah, yeah. close to one G. Uh, um, but we would we would make turns pull four, five, six Gs. Yeah, And wow. if you continuously, if you were continuously turning at about three and a half to four Gs, the blood from your brain would rush down lower in your body and your vision would start to deteriorate. First, the color goes away. And if you keep doing it, you just gray out. And if you continue doing it, you'd black out. So in turbulence, the, the worst turbulence you'll ever get in an airplane, the, the G-forces might be 1.6. Yeah. So we're talking about at least twice that before you would have vision problems. So what I've said, and I kind of ingest, but people say that it actually helps them, is to get a little sticky note and put it on the seat back in front of them. If I can read this, it is not yet time to worry. Yeah, okay, Because if that's you good. have it grayed out, yeah, you're good. then you're not in trouble. And so if there's only one thing that we remember, you know, if we get on a flight and we feel terrified, if there's only one thing that you can recommend that we remember to help us with our fear of flying, what is that, Tom? I think at that point, you, if there's someone you can talk to, just talk with them because maybe their presence will be calming. But if you're alone, um, yeah. see if you can do the five, four, three, two, one. To get the thought yeah. pushed aside so the stress hormones that are coming from that thought are getting burned off as you focus on the things around you that you can name. Out, do it out loud, by the way, uh, that you can name, that you see, that you hear, that you touch. Yeah, brilliant. Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. I know that has been super helpful for me, and I'll definitely keep that in mind next time I fly. Okay, great. See you next time. Thank you so much. Captain Tom Bunn is an airline pilot and licensed therapist and the president of SOAR. I'm Ed Stott and I sincerely hope that's helpful.